welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. Bacha is off, and Brianna will be here later this week. But today we have Alimi Aluren back with us. So nice to see you, Alimi. It's exciting to be here, Robbie. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Well, we've got a lot to get to. Abraham Enriquez and Dr. Patricia Campos Medina will join to discuss some new polling data from Latino voters, and then also we'll get into, of course, Kanye West deplatforming from Twitter and Instagram. But first, last Thursday, President Biden announced he will issue mass pardons for people convicted of possessing marijuana under federal law. The White House will also advise the Department of Justice to review cannabis's status as a Schedule One drug, where it's currently classified along with heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. Let's watch this. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. The announcement serves as an unexpected win for cannabis and criminal justice reform advocates alike. However, not everyone is completely satisfied. Policy experts told Rolling Stone that the pardon is set to cover at least 6,000 people who have received a federal possession conviction since 1992, but none of them are currently incarcerated. That's compared to the almost 40,000 Americans the White House says are currently serving time for other cannabis-related charges. Criminal defense lawyer Dr. Rebecca Kavanaugh tweeted, quote, Biden's announcement is kind of smoke and mirrors because most federal prosecutions for marijuana are for sale or for trafficking, not possession, even when the amount of weed involved is very small. The pardon also fails to cover people who were in the country illegally when they were charged. So a more limited um, uh, effect than it might seem at first, although certainly I would say a step in the right direction, something President, uh, something that you know, many people who voted for President Biden yes. wanted him to do, you know, kind of a, he's a drug warrior kind of guy yep. from a long time ago. Um, obviously, his vice president is. Right. But, uh, but you know, this is a good, good uh, trajectory. I actually agree. I'm normally pretty critical of Biden, but actually when this news, um, this news broke, I actually tweeted out that, you know, if he does actually take marijuana off the federal schedule of drugs and he pardons these things, that will be a significant step in the right direction. Although I want to be fair, in fairness, this, there are lots of people that are not going to be positively impacted, right? It shouldn't just extend to people who possess marijuana, but right. also people who have sold marijuana, too. I also think it's important that he encourage the states to, to do similarly with state convictions, because that's where most possession cases are, are handled on the right. state level. The federal government actually doesn't prosecute these things, which also I think is relevant when we look at who this will impact, because more likely, not only are this only 6,500 people from 1992 to now, but they probably have other charges and other things, right? They don't, the federal government generally doesn't uh, handle these kinds of possessions. So it probably won't have as positive an, of an impact there. I would say the people who would most stand to benefit from a law like this are immigrants. Immigrants, mm -hmm. federally, the federal issue, immigrants are often deported. Many immigrants have been deported or made inadmissible because of things like this. But unfortunately, the specific caveat on the law excludes yeah. them. So I am, I'm wary of just how impactful it will be. But I want to give credit where credit is due, and this is still a positive right. step. For a, for a drug that is treated like heroin, like LSD, et cetera, right. that is 
you know, not addictive, right. not, does not like kill, I, I don't know, where, where, where are the bodies, the, the, the uh, marijuana bodies? Right. I don't know, there's dozens of them, I don't know. It's decriminalized in 31 states right. already, it's legal in 11 states, we already just pop cultures uh, in our, just our social values. Marijuana just isn't, we don't view marijuana the same way we did, and it's absurd that there are people, thousands of people all over this country sitting in prison for selling marijuana on the state level, but also, and possessing it on the state level. So I think we have to take consideration to that. It, it is good, because I think the federal government making a statement that they're going to back off from marijuana in a particular mm -hmm. kind of way will encourage states to, to act similarly, but I think it's important to look at the, the scope of what'll actually happen, what still needs right. to happen. Coming right, and th there are people for who are in pain. Yes. For, for whom cannabis right. can be a substitute for other, uh, help them deal with right. chronic pain, and can be a substitute for far more harmful things right. like opioids, right. which are our whole drug problem right now is is these kind of inadvertent poisonings from fentanyl, right. which is making its way into our opioids. Yes. And, 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 you know, the prescription, the prescribing and all, all of that going on, we want good, right. healthier alternatives to opioids. Right. Marijuana is one of them, and the federal government has been treating it like, like it's this insanely harmful, dangerous, Agreed. Risky substance. No, and no one, no one on earth can make an argument for why alcohol is legal and marijuana is right. illegal. There's just no. It falls apart of minimum scrutiny. And I will say, while we're in the process of saying, you know, black people, although black and white people uh, use use marijuana at similar rates, and we are disproportionately arrested and incarcerated and prosecuted for it, the same is true of of selling drugs. And I think that's important when you look at currently in our current. We have weed is legalized in many states. It's decriminalized in many states. And you see all kind of places, even like New York City who are getting the cannabis license, white people. White people being allowed to get these licenses lawful and sell weed and make entire businesses out of it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen um, my boy Seth Rogen doing all kind of cute stuff with weed, and you see it, you see it treated in this, in this very um, not criminal, very friendly, very right. understood, very socially accepted way, and at the same time, their entire communities still being plagued with the after effects right. of not being given that benefit. So to me, it's important. I want to give Biden credit where it's due, because listen, I recognize it's a process. He's yeah. come a long way from where he originally stood on marijuana, and I want to give that credit, but he's, he's got to go further. And, and Republicans should recognize that this is a, a decentralization thing. Yes. In, in part, like, let states that want to experiment with looser restrictions right. on marijuana, that want to allow a business, uh, uh, businesses to, to sell cannabis, right. let them do that right now because the federal government, the Biden administration currently, right. has made that it, it confusing mm -hmm. and, and al allowing for law enforcement and, and harassing of, of Americans who are just right. trying to work. Right. Like, that is not some, that is something Republicans should be against, and many are against. In fact, like, legalizing marijuana is, is, is has popular. become very popular Incredibly among like, popular. all segments of the population. So. And I think it would help us address some of the issues we've been talking about. Like you said, the opioid crisis, uh, the opioid crisis, the way our criminal system is, both those things, we could better address that if we didn't have wheat, marijuana being illegal and right. states followed suit, you could see them better regulated, create a market. They could not only make money, which we all know is important to our government, but then they could also try and you know intervene from some of these problems and these opioid issues and these fentanyl issues that they're so concerned about. They could, they could better have a control over that yeah. if they actually got in the business. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris was certainly gleeful to announce the Biden administration's change in policy. The bottom line there is nobody should have to go to jail for smoking weed. Well, that's interesting. But who could forget Tulsi Gabbard's infamous scorcher approach to Kamala Harris during the 2020 primaries? Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record 
as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. And it's not really as if she's ever, uh, Kamala Harris has ever like written off those policies or apologized yeah. for them or explained what changed in her thinking yeah. because it really wasn't thinking. It yeah. was just, it's not, there's Correct. no ideology to her, right? Yeah, I, you know, listen, and I don't, I don't think this is just true of Kamala. I think this is true of many of our politicians. Oh, they, of course. Yeah. They, they do what they believe is popular, unfortunately, for most of our lifetime. And to some degree, it's, it's changed a lot. There's a lot of pushback to what conventionally was thought of as tough on crime. But in not fairness, because I'm highly critical. You know I don't have nothing positive to say about Kamala's prosecutorial record, and I am not going to defend it, but I'm going to say just in the very least, she was in the company of, of a world of politicians that just... Everyone. Exactly, she was. That being said, if time, times have changed, and if you are now changing your positions because, you know, your base, your party, the country does not feel that way anymore, that's fine. I want you to do better. I'd rather you change and make change than yeah. be dogmatic about something just so you don't have to, um, you know, wipe the egg yeah. off your face, but it's better to acknowledge it. Exactly. When, when people criticize politicians for flip-flopping, I always say, well, which way did they yeah. flip? Yeah, I, I want, want you them to, change. to flip in my direction. Yes. And then, and then we can. And I want to incentivize that's, that. That's why I didn't come out here, you know, talking about. Yeah. Because Biden's track record's not great when yeah. it comes to things like this, right? And neither is Kamala's. But I would much rather they try and make positive change than just stay, stay the same way. So I'm going to incentivize that by not giving them a lot of grief Indeed. at the top of this morning. All right. Well, coming up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar. Stay tuned for that. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, PayPal is a company that facilitates financial transactions. It owns Venmo, which is an app that many people, myself included, have used to pay each other for services. The company effectively creates a digital wallet where you can store money, like in a bank account, and use it to complete financial transactions. Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, billionaire entrepreneurs who have both talked about the importance of free speech and civil liberties, well, both of them have been involved in the company at various stages. All right, a few days ago, PayPal rolled out an updated user agreement. That agreement prohibits the sending, posting, or publication of any messages, content, or materials that present a risk to user safety or well-being or contain misinformation. The policy notes that what counts as misinformation is at PayPal's sole discretion, and the penalty for violating this policy is a withdrawal of $2,500 from the offending user's account. Now, many people don't keep that much money in their account, but some do. And the new policy says that PayPal can deduct $2,500 from your account per infraction. So someone who spreads quite a bit of so-called misinformation could stand to lose a great deal of money. This is obviously incredibly worrying. For one thing, efforts to police misinformation have been prone to significant error and significant overreach. Governments, media organizations, and tech platforms have all made serious attempts to limit the spread of misinformation by cracking down on speech that they thought was wrong or dangerous. But time and time again, these measures have resulted in censorship of legitimate discourse. 
Facebook, for instance, took great pains to prevent users from theorizing that COVID-19 emerged from a lab. Twitter faced pressure from the Biden administration to purge accounts that criticized the mainstream consensus on vaccines, masks, and other subjects. YouTube's policies prohibited content creators from spreading so-called COVID misinformation, including the statement, masks don't work, and COVID is no more dangerous than the flu. Now, some of those statements have more validity than others, in my opinion, but none of them are considered outside the bounds of acceptable conversation any longer because things have changed. That which the misinformation gatekeepers termed misinformation is now just information, which makes you question the wisdom of punishing people for spreading it. And the government's so-called misinformation experts have performed no better than media organizations or social media platforms. Remember Nina Jankowicz, who was chosen as director of the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board? Well, Jankowicz was given the job of policing disinformation at the highest levels of elite law enforcement and national intelligence, and yet she was someone who had wrongly flagged the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story as Russian disinformation. It wasn't. We all know that. Today, we know the laptop was real. So was the story. Okay, so back to PayPal. So there is some good news here. The company has said in a statement that the update well, was a mistake. Quote, an AUP notice recently went out in error that included incorrect information, a PayPal spokesperson told Fox Business. PayPal is not fining people for misinformation, and this language was never intended to be inserted in our policy. End quote. So you can take that for what it's worth. Maybe the update was a genuine error, or maybe PayPal simply received so much criticism over the last few days that they're changing course. But, this is an important but, as Eugene Volokh, a law professor and one of my colleagues at Reason Magazine, he points out that PayPal does still have a policy, was already on the books, and states that you may not use the PayPal service for activities that relate to the promotion of hate, violence, racial or other forms of intolerance that is discriminatory or the financial exploitation of a crime. Now, violating that policy can also result loss of 2,500 bucks. Volokh warns that sharply criticizing a religion or government officials maybe, well, that could be construed as the promotion of hate and could theoretically violate that policy. Sounds like a good reason to think twice about using PayPal, writes Volokh. I've just withdrawn the $1,000 I have in my PayPal account, and I'm starting the process of disentangling myself from the service to the extent possible. That sounds like a good plan to me. So I don't know. What do you think about this, Alimi? Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Like, this is not being adjudicated in a court of law. This is just a, this is just a company. So if you've given them this money, I mean, it's, it's your money. They're saying they're just going to they're, they're just gonna deduct. Now, they're saying they're not doing the misinformation thing. Yeah. But if you read the fine print, the, there are other grounds for, because um, what we term hate, yeah. you know. Listen, I, I understand we are in a time of mis misinformation on both sides. I think there's misinformation all around. No one reads anything. A lot of clickbait, a lot of headlines. I think that goes true all around the internet, but you know, I am I, I'm against any any boards, anybody trying to be the gatekeeper or the deciding factor on right. who censors it or who figures out what is misinformation or what isn't. Also, information evolves, um, so when you decide it might be, it might not, you know, the same reason. So I'm right. actually on your side with that general reasoning, plus I'm just always wary of anything that seems like it's going to take us into Big Brother territory. But I don't get this in particular because 
am I misunderstanding how PayPal works? Like that's not a PayPal's not a social app where we're spreading information. Like how does it work? Or is it intended to apply right. against companies? Is it like if companies or organizations have a PayPal account and they do something on their separate platforms, will they be punished? How is it working? Because right. I guess that's what I want to know. So my what I gather that's a great question. What I yeah. gather from it is that they intended to and again they've said they're not doing the misinformation yeah. thing. That was a mistake. But what I would have suspected that to kind of be run you get in trouble with that if you were right if you were Venmoing or something yeah. uh, or using uh, financial transactions on PayPal for uh, to like an organization uh-huh. that is promoting something that is t- deemed misinformation like on that. COVID like some kind of so if you're you know, if you're using money organization probably so you know. Uh, that's that's probably a no for me. Yeah. That's going to be a no for me on either way, right? Like, yeah. Listen, you know what my feelings are on the other side of the aisle, the belief systems. Yeah, I, but I still believe people have the right to think what they want, engage in that, support what organizations they want. Barring, it's not something like the client. Well, there's just kind of a presumption that mm-hmm. that's not like a company like this stays in its lane. Right. This is a financial transaction company. Like, yeah, I, you know, if you right. if you commit a financial crime, I guess you can get you're going to get thrown off the platform. But they're not. It is. It is increasingly though. These large um, tech companies are 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 trying to do. We've seen this with uh, what with DuckDuckGo, with yeah. uh, with GoFundMe, with other right. you know the the kinds of reaching into the. Well, we don't actually approve of this kind of financial activity, yeah. so we don't. And look, they can do that, but they should. They, they first of all, they need to be upfront. I think they need to be upfront. Like, look, this is a plat. This is a platform. This is a service only for, I guess, liberals or something who agree. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. It seems like they're being deliberately vague around this. I can only right. imagine in my mind if they have this policy in place. I don't think there's anything wrong with a policy that says you're not allowed to engage in hate and crimes and discrimination and things that are just universally we have pretty much those rules anywhere and anything uh, that you agree to. I don't think that's a problem. Finding people is a different conversation. Stealing. $2,500 for me is a cause to fight. Right, it's your money. Right. <laughs> that, you, that, you, that you would have, under this policy, I guess, foolishly just let no, them No, we have to fight. Have no, we, ha- we, yeah, we, we, yeah. Have, we have to fight. If yeah. you take $2,500 from me, we have to fight um, regardless. And because I, I think, it, and also... How how much is intention being being incorporated into right. this? Because you can miss you can spread inform, misinformation by mistake. People, you tweet out the right. wrong thing. You say, oh no, I didn't. You know, you correct right. this, you change this. But a twenty five hundred dollar hit, which is why it led me to believe maybe this is about going after organizations, which I think that is a little bit and, different. But than and it's just changed people. so many. You know, we, you you used to be you were not allowed to say under social various social media policies you couldn't say uh, the vaccines don't stop the spread of COVID. Mm-hmm. But now we all know that's essentially true. It, it stops you from getting very ill, but it's not, it's not hold the vaccines are not really holding back cases. Like, you know, that's that's not a contested thing. I can't get into that. I am not, I am not qualified to pretend to be a COVID expert. I do know, I will say this, this the only thing I could give is my personal anecdote is that I'm vaccinated, boosted, and I ain't never had COVID. Not one one time, Robbie, and I don't know if I'm built different, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I might be (laughs) pro-vaccine. I'm I'm, no, I'm pro-vaccine as well, but it's just, uh, it's, it's, they were they were yeah, presented I the, it. the good they were they were what, what you said they were it's, doing not you specifically yeah. but the experts said no, no I get it didn't pan out I think that's a perfect example of when you look at COVID in specific just because yeah. I think COVID is when we first started hearing misinformation misinformation just twenty four seven and we've seen the COVID. 
I don't even know where the COVID dialogue is at at yeah. this point. It's changed so much in both, like, right. who knows, right? Who knows what's true, what's valid? Because just the other day I said to my friend, oh, I think I need to get boosted, right? I need to get boosted every six months. He was like, no, nah, that's, that's done. It doesn't, doesn't work. I'm like, what? But when did it change? You didn't update me. So I do think it has changed. I think that's a perfect example, Robbie, on Your how friend's got to look changed. out for using PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might, he might catch a bill. But if you have $2,500 sitting in your PayPal to go, I, I don't know if you get the, the most of my sympathy, yeah. but I would still fight regardless. Take it out. Take it out. <laughs> More rising right after this. President Biden told his audience at a fundraiser on Thursday that Putin was not joking when threatening the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And that suggested that the world is facing, quote, the prospect of Armageddon for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Military expert at defense priorities, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, says Biden knows that a nuclear war over Ukraine is possible and asks, will the president change course? The Lieutenant Colonel is here with us to weigh in. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Yeah, great to have you as always. And we discussed this earlier in our show, uh, how interesting it is to hear remarks from uh, former President Trump recently talking about the desperate need to have peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Meanwhile, uh, Joe Biden is has said repeatedly, you know, we're as committed to this thing as long as it takes, as long as it takes, um, even though, and I, I think you've said this on our show as well, it, it's inarguable that the risk of nuclear war is now is now greater than it has been maybe perhaps any time in the last i don't know last decade last two decades oh much more than that i mean I, this is one thing i certainly do agree with uh, president biden on when he said this is the biggest threat of nuclear catastrophe since 1962 and he's absolutely right it's never been higher than what it is right now because you have both sides openly talking about it you have uh, putin and many of his acolytes uh, openly saying that if this, you know, if our country is threatened, if our existential threat, if we feel like there's one, we'll use nuclear weapons. There's no question about that. And yet we we acknowledge that tacitly, but then we continue on with these actions that feed into Putin's fear. And there is no good thing for us on that. Uh, our continued going down that path doesn't make us safer. It doesn't make Putin any less likely to use it. In fact, it has the opposite effect. And I'm telling you, we have to change course somehow for our own national security interests. Right. Like, let's play this out. Is the belief that Ukraine, with all of the funding and support of the West and the world, is going to militarily overcome Russia? Is that is that, in fact, the argument? That is the argument. <laughs> That's what a lot of people think. But but look, you got to look at what's happening on the ground. Ukraine just spent... Uh, the better part of the last uh, six or eight weeks having these two relatively successful, actually very successful in the north offensives. But they have now played out. They have gone as far as they can go. And the Russia has now reaffirmed and stiffened. But Russia now has up to 300,000 more ground troops coming in. And as we've seen over the last 48 hours, missiles are continuing to rain in from Moscow devastating the energy infrastructure throughout Ukraine, which is necessary for them to continue even fighting and moving troops around, etc. So the, the, the dynamic is going to continue to be going against Ukraine and improving Russia's strength. And that's just going to raise the stakes for everybody. So how does... So how does Putin approach this? Because there's a there's a difference, right, between Vladimir Putin being in some existential danger, or maybe there isn't, I guess, like your opinion on this, between Vladimir Putin 
as the you know chief administrator of the Russian state being in some kind of jeopardy because the war is unpopular. Maybe his you know his the people he's surrounded with don't like him. You know, long history in Soviet Union of you know leaders getting it when they when things are not going well. And Russia itself being threatened, and, and the, the question: Are those different things? And is you know is could Putin do something, you know, reckless and world-changing because he feel not necessarily because of the position Russia is in, but that he himself is in personally? Well, you know, when you have an autocratic leader like Putin, uh, it's it's almost impossible to disentangle whether the his personal security or the nation's security. Uh, are separate. I, I think that they're one and the same, especially when he is the sole decider on nuclear weapons. There is no committee or anything else like that, like there is in some places. He alone has the, the decision and the launch authority for nuclear weapons. So if he feels like he's being threatened, whether, and I think I may have put this in that 1945 article to which you're referring, if Putin feels like that he's at risk of a 1917-style uh a revolution to where he could suffer a palace coup or any kind of thing like that, he could be then feel like he has to use the weapons. And of course, in his mind, it would be very easy to say, oh, well, this is for the national security of our country. You know, we have to stop these attacks before they come. So that's entirely possible. And of course, we don't know how that dynamic is playing out inside. All we do know is that the risk to us, if that does, is, is, is in bigger than anything we can imagine. And the gamble does seem to be a lose-lose scenario. Either Russia succeeds militarily without bombs, in which case we're back where we started. Ukraine succeeds in re regaining all um, claimed territory and pushing Russia completely out. Russia loses militarily and then feels kind of provoked into a nuclear response. And at that point, we're basically hoping that Russia doesn't feel as though, you know, that, that Russia has the wherewithal or whatever motives to just say, okay, we lost this one, guys, never mind. And is that the kind of gamble that we're wanting to take on Putin's, you know, um, you know re re respect for populations or, you know, his his apathy, you know, his lack of appetite for, you know, mass destruction to not launch a nuclear bomb. That, that does feel to be like the, the line we're walking up to in the presumption that we're making, that Ukraine can win the war and then that it will just be over at that point if the war is won on the ground. It, it does appear just from, from what people are saying and what we're doing that that is the presumption. And, and as I've said multiple times, and I believe even on your show here, is that in my view, there is zero chance, not even unlikely, but zero chance that Putin would allow his forces uh, over any period of time to be physically driven out of all this territory, which he now can, believes is Russian territory, and him not escalate up to nuclear weapons. There's just no chance in my mind that he would do that. So I think that by continuing to have that as an objective on our side is to say that let's just push even closer to the nuclear threshold, which is absurd for our security. I mean, if you think about the history of Europe, it's a history of long, sometimes hundred-year struggles being fought over, you know, small pieces of land that one side, both sides claim, and they don't like they take forever to resolve, and they don't resolve. Then they go, then they go back, they fight over it again and again and again. 
And part of the, I guess, the triumph, right, of the modern era is getting out of that mentality where you have, you know, nation states squabbling over territory, um, unending with just constant violence. Now it looks like Ukraine and Russia might be back in that dynamic where they are, you know, Russia will gain and then Ukraine will gain, and they're, you know, they're basically squabbling over not the entirety of Ukraine, but over that um, eastern portion. How do we, what can be done to, you know, to stop this from being like a conflict that just stretches on for years and years and years and it's, you know, it's just barren, like destroyed land, like, like in the trench warfare or something of World War One? You know, I, I, I was emphatic in the months leading up to this war that we had to avoid this very conflicting dynamic that you just described there by having di- diplomacy and negotiating a settlement and, and everybody agreeing you can't get everything you want, no maximalist desires on any side, but both sides have to get something or they're going to get, we're going to end up in war. That now has happened. So now we can't go back to that other one. Now then the question is, what do we do now? And this is a critical question here. Should the United States risk the national security of our country, of all of NATO, over potentially getting dragged into a nuclear war over the eastern part of Ukraine. You, you said that very well right there. This is stuff that's been going on for you know decades and in some cases centuries in different capacities on the same ground. And this is a squabble between Moscow and Kiev. And it's an existential and huge fight for them and very important to both, but not to us. And the, the idea that we could potentially lose American citizens, American troops, or American cities over something in the Donbass is just absurd out on the face of it. And we definitely need to change policies. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that. We always appreciate your commentary, Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll have more rising for you right after this. A tweet from Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Latipo about COVID-19 mRNA vaccines was reportedly taken down and then later reinstated. So the Friday tweet linked to guidance on the Florida Department of Health website, which officially recommends against vaccination for young men after analysis done by that same Florida Health Department found an 84 percent increase in the relative incidence of cardiac related deaths among males 18 to 39 years old within 20 days following mRNA vaccination. Again, that was conducted by the Florida Department of Health. That's just their analysis. Yeah, the tweet was reportedly taken down on Saturday for violating Twitter's policies and then restored later that morning. Latipo responded to the situation on Fox News. Let's take a look. There's been so much confusion, as you know, over the past few years that people have trouble sometimes even identifying when something has so clearly crossed the line. Yeah, so some of the critique here has been that it's not a, you know, controlled scientific study. It was an analysis that was done on, you know, Democrat, you know, data collected within state. Some people have pointed to the fact that data from other states where there is are higher vaccination rates haven't shown the same spike in, um, you know, health risks for that age group. And so at very least more research needs to be done. And the concern is obviously that prematurely putting out information that might discourage people from getting vaccinated could put them at more risk, especially as we are looking toward the winter and a more harmful wave being anticipated if they don't go ahead and protect themselves with the tools that we have available. Yeah, look, I th- that's a pretty significant increase that this analysis found. It would surprise me if that 
findings stood up to further analysis. Um, how I, I, I don't particularly think um, the vaccines are nearly that dangerous, even for that age group. All that said, I, I can't see much justification in taking down discussion of that. It, it is a scientific analysis done by scientific yeah. people. It might be wrong. I mean, do we really know? We don't, we do, like, we don't, we don't know for certain that it's wrong. Yeah, I, I think would, it I, might. I'm it, curious <laughs> to see scientists engaging with it. I mean, right. I, I want to know. Look, because I'm not interested in pretending that it's not true if it is. And I, and I think that's part of the issue that's been going on here is that a failure to trust the public with information has led people to withhold information from the public that later leads into public distrust so that there's now no sources that anybody will find to be credible. Well, and Twitter is exactly doing this. So they took this yeah. down, and then they're like, eh, actually, okay, we're putting it back up. They're just making, they're eroding, I mean, the, the platforms have eroded trust in the, for, for good reason. Like, who thinks that the people who make content moderation decisions at Twitter and Facebook have any idea more than the rest of us you know, what should be allowed to yeah. be up or not? Uh, I, I think Twitter has, in some ways, done a better job than Facebook handling some of these subjects, but this is a, a great one to the contrary. So they took it down, and then, and then they said, we shouldn't have done that. They put it back up. It's just, and also, like, at this point, holding back information like this from people has a very what-are-you-hiding kind of quality to it. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you, if you don't trust people at some, I mean, if we've been through everything, like, how many times do gatekeeper-type people have to learn the lesson that when you try to vigorously suppress information, there are a lot, some people just get more suspicious or they get more determined to find that information. Yes, and look, this is the, you know, Florida Department of Public Health. I mean, this is this is as mainstream as it gets. They can post whatever they want on their state websites. I mean, this is this isn't exactly one of those instances where you can kind of deplatform someone and they go away anyway, even if that were your goal. Right. And you know, I got to say, in my own experience of covering COVID on my own shows, I'll have someone on like Vinay Prasad. People will get very mad. I'll have someone else on that's recommended from the quote unquote other side of things. I had you and Walker Bagman together in one episode. But most frequently, the people who know the most on opposite sides of the issue almost never agreed to be on the show at the same time and talk to each other about it. And that would be the quickest way to find out what is actually mm -hmm. true, because otherwise you're relying on the, the host to, you know, do a secondhand version of the arguments that the other side would be making and, and still manning it to the best of their ability, which is never going to be well, as good. And leaving stuff on Twitter, I got to say, being able to at least engage with it in this public discourse is the closest a lot of folks are going to get to be able to engage directly. And you can find pretty persuasive arguments from extremely knowledgeable people, on the people who are no, more knowledgeable than you and I, yeah. who have radically opposite views on this subject. Yes. And it's, That's why it's so confusing. It's, uh, and, and we have to recall that uh, vaccine recommendations and guidance, are. there are other countries in our kind of peer groups who are not recommending vaccines for young people anymore. Uh, most, and mostly this is not because they're finding some very serious harm, but because they're finding so little benefit right. that it doesn't really make sense. Right. And, and so, again, respected scientists, again, if you're, if you're a liberal, like respective liberal, not conservative, not like Ron DeSantis or something, but liberal scientific health authorities in other countries have reached somewhat significantly different conclusions about what to recommend, what policies to have. And it is not, it is not anti-science. It is not like wanting people to die. It's not like Florida's yeah. experiment in human sacrifice to, to draw, make somewhat different distinctions or to look at the data and have somewhat different conclusions. Yeah. It's worth noting again that this isn't a, 
clinical trial. Uh, yeah. It's a relatively small sample size. I think people were saying online that it was uh, 20 deaths in question. Uh, Joseph Ladapo uh, did a follow-up tweet where he said there's 77 deaths in question, which is larger, but still a relatively small sample size. And look, I think I, I did a quick perusal through the quote tweets and responses to see what the counter arguments are. I, I want to see more of that. Like, yeah. if, if there's a problem here, I really encourage people not to say you're just a dumb shill who hates science. Yeah. Because none of us learn from that. If you have an argument to make, please make the argument and you know vet this mm -hmm. in the in the court of public opinion. Actually, that was one of the here. most helpful things when um, I, I can't recall her name uh, was making the claims about. Um, I mean, I know her name. I'm just blanking on it right now. But uh, <laughs> it was making the claims about how vaccines were causing miscarriages. Mm -hmm. um, Naomi Wolf. Wolf. Yes, that's it. I get Naomi Wolf and Naomi Klein confused. Yeah, is... Naomi Klein doesn't love that. No, I'm, I'm sure she doesn't. <laughs> Naomi Wolf was making that, and Naomi Watts. We'll get her in there. Um, <laughs> Naomi Wolf was making that claim, and then, and then, actually, what was helpful was that people were quote tweeting that and saying, actually, this analysis is wrong, including people who are otherwise very skeptical of vaccines, mm -hmm. which carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. When Alex Berenson says. Love Naomi Wolf, but she mm -hmm. did not read this correctly. Mm -hmm. That means something. Yeah. So that's a good argument for leaving this stuff on Twitter and yeah. not taking, not having the ban hammer. I think I agree. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll have more rising for you after this. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, as we covered yesterday on the show, Tulsi Gabbard, former representative for Hawaii's 2nd Congressional District, announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party. Now, mainstream corporate Democrats had a predictable response. For example, activist Charlotte Clymer, uh, journalist Dan Rather, and dozens of others tweeted some version of Kel surprise, alluding to a perceived shift by Tulsi toward conservative news sources and talking points over the course of the last couple of years. Leftists tended toward a more substantive critique, pointing out, as Ben Norton of the Gray Zone did, that while the Democratic Party is deeply neoliberal and pro-imperialist, calling it anti-white, as she did in her viral announcement video, is, quote, absurd right-wing culture war nonsense. But Norton's most important point, and the one I want to focus on, is his next one. The problem isn't that Gabbard is wrong about the Democratic Party. It is imperialist. It is corrupt. However, the problem is that without a similarly robust critique of the neoliberal corporate Wall Street Republicans, she's simply co-opting a genuine anti-war concern to sheepdog genuinely anti-war voters toward a party that has no intention of, well, stopping endless wars. This is a disappointing turn. Like most leftists, I was introduced to Tulsi when she courageously resigned as vice chair of the DNC to support Bernie Sanders, citing her experience as a military veteran and the fact that she wanted the United States to avoid interventionist wars of regime change. Take a listen. The American people are faced with a very clear choice. We can elect a president who will lead us into more interventionist wars of regime change, or we can elect a president who will usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. It's with this clear choice in mind that I'm resigning as vice chair of the DNC so that I can strongly support Bernie Sanders as the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. But her anti-war stance rings somewhat hollow when she reserves no criticism for the Warhawks and the Republican Party, too. 
For example, in May, after Congress passed $40 billion in aid for Ukraine, Gabbard tweeted her concern that as Americans struggled with rising gas prices and inflation, Washington rushed to fund yet another endless war, a fair criticism in my book, and one which we've raised repeatedly on this show. But the overwhelming majority of Republicans in the House, all but 57 of them, voted for the $40 billion in Ukraine aid, and only 11 Republican senators out of 50, of course, voted against it. Certainly, certainly more Republicans and Democrats voted for the funding, including independent senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, who has been oddly silent on the escalations in the region and calls for peace from the left. Still, it's important to recognize that the, quote, permanent Washington establishment, as she describes it, is a dangerous bird that needs two wings to fly. Biden and the Democrats absolutely deserve criticism for using Raytheon as a recruiting ground for defense secretaries and for taking millions of dollars from the defense industry when running for office. But that's also true of Donald Trump and some of the top takers of defense contractor money are, in fact, Republicans. David Perdue of Georgia, Roy Blunt of Missouri, Susan Collins of Maine, and Rick Scott of Florida top the list, followed by Democrat Tom Carper from Biden's home state. According to a 2020 Sludge report, 51 members of Congress and their spouses own between $2.3 and $5.8 million of stocks in companies that are among the top 30 defense contractors in the world. The conflict of interest is obvious. More than 70% of Lockheed Martin's $51 billion in 2018 revenue came from sales to the U.S. government, and nearly one-third of the members of the Senate Defense Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee own stocks in top defense contractors. Simply put, when war happens, stocks go up. When Trump killed Iranian General Soleimani, dozens of members of Congress saw their portfolio value bump due to the possibility of war. War quite literally pays for the people we expect to keep the peace. But those people, those guilty parties, are in both political camps. The solution to this war profiteering may very well involve leaving the Democratic Party. I certainly left it a long time ago. But I am not so naive as to believe that the Republican Party, with its open courtship of weapons manufacturers, is the solution. Perhaps more puzzling about Tulsi's pivot is that her allusion to culture wars as a motivation for her departure is a little out of place. On one level, I understand this too. Part of my choice to distance myself from Democrats was my belief that they weaponized identity and representational politics to avoid dealing with the material economic concerns so many working people, white, black, brown, Asian alike, are struggling with. But the point of that critique is to help working people not to invest in a different kind of right-wing identity politics, where fears about a war on religion or a war on white people are simply replacements for the Democrats' identity politics wars. Tulsi wrote, quote, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms enshrined in our Constitution, are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, demonize the police and protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, and on and on and on. 
Like, I strongly object to any politics that diminishes the struggles of working class and poor white Americans, like all Americans. I've argued to editorial boards where I've worked in the past that they should cover midterm elections from the perspective of who is best meeting the needs of the opioid crisis, and which disproportionately, although not exclusively, harms white folks. I think it's a tragic reality that life expectancy has declined for white Americans, and that my generation is the first to take a step back from the American dream. At the same time, however, I push for an inclusive message that affirmatively values all Americans, even if at times it's necessary to specifically call out prejudices that rear their heads against specific groups, whether it's the white supremacist attacks on Jewish people during Charlottesville or at the Tree of Life massacre, or whether it's the Buffalo shooting which targeted black Americans, or the Uvalde shooting in a Latino community that targeted children. Is there a space to critique all kinds of bigotry in Tulsi's vision or just anti-white racism? I, I truly don't know, and this is a question I'm genuinely curious to see the answer to, and which I think Tulsi should try to answer in the coming days and weeks. Moreover, I'd like to hear from her what constitutes demonizing the police. Is it wrong to, say, criticize their ineptitude in Uvalde? The fact that increased funding, including under the Biden administration, hasn't actually led to lower crime. If I agree with the majority of LA conservatives that I support reallocating parts of LAPD's budget to social workers, mental health care, and other social services, is that demonizing the police? Does this reallocation, sometimes referred to as defunding, seem less like demonizing the police when I point out that according to this recent Marymount poll, support for reallocating the police budget to social services is higher among people who live with a cop than people who don't? Look, Tulsi is right when she writes that the pro-war Democratic Party has led us to the brink of nuclear war, but it didn't do it alone. Tulsi is poised to make a powerful statement against our two-party duopoly, and if she does, calling out both parties for their choice to weaponize the security state and federal law enforcement, not just for political reasons, but to oppress the poor who languish disproportionately in our country's overfull prisons, she could be a powerful, positive force in this country. If she talked about how the IRS overtargets poor people who are easy to audit rather than going after the rich, partly because they are insufficiently staffed and funded to do so, it would strengthen her critique of that agency. For all of the culture war bluster in her Substack post, the word poor shows up zero times. The word working, as in working people or working class, it shows up exactly once. I humbly submit that what America needs is not another culture warrior. What made Tulsi admired by many across the political spectrum in the first instance was her commitment to speaking hard truths about the military-industrial complex and taking politically inconvenient stands that lost her powerful friends. Exchanging one elite party for another would seem to defeat the point. As one leftist YouTuber wrote, leaving the Dems for the GOP is like leaving Cherry Coke for Classic Coke. Are we looking for something substantively different or just a new flavor of gas? Bernie, the guy Tulsi once gave up her DNC position for, is too quiet on Ukraine, but he hasn't stopped foregrounding the needs of working people, catching flack from the establishment after he criticized the Democrats for focusing so much of their midterm advertising on abortion to the exclusion of economic issues that polls show majorities still prioritize. Will Tulsi champion working people in that way? 
Will she foreground talk of a minimum wage, wealth tax, health care for all, all policies she wants backed as a Bernie delegate? The Lever just reported that 12 years after the ACA, big insurers are getting most of their money from the government and have jacked up prices by nearly 24%. Do issues like that matter at least as much as a war on religion that, by the way, no one has hardly defined, much less proposed a solution to? Our profit-based medical system is so cruel that children's beds are being replaced by more lucrative adult beds in hospitals across the country. Is that at least as big a priority as passing laws to keep trans middle schoolers from playing on the sports team of their choosing? Look, even if you agree that Democrats are trying to divide us up, are you so confident that your rhetoric isn't doing the same? Mm. I think that, that's the fundamental question. I'm really beyond trying to convince anybody that they you know, should or shouldn't care about any given issues. My only concern is whether or not people are prioritizing the things that actually materially affect their life or if they're falling for the traps that some culture warriors on both sides of the aisle try to set to obscure the extent to which people who are running our country, people who are at the top of both political parties, the elites, which know no political bias, they're everywhere in both parties at the top, are trying to keep you from noticing that you're getting a smaller and smaller share of the pie. Not because of each other, but because of the policies she, that they're setting. But she didn't announce, she only announced that she's leaving the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. She has not actually joined the Absolutely. Republican Party. So, you know, while I, I guess I, I agree with you that the Republican Party deserves criticism for various things and, uh, you know, that it, people should denounce them as well, um, she, she has not yet said, maybe that's going to change, but she hasn't said, this is everything I like about the Democratic Party, so I'm, like, I'm joining the Republican Party because I like it better. Maybe she'll join the Libertarian Party. Maybe she'll join the Forward Party. Maybe she'll just remain an independent who you know, picks and chooses aspects of the parties that she agrees with. You know, what it comes down for me, I mean, her fundamental, I, I, I think of her as most fundamentally defined by her opposition to nation building. She was this crusading figure on that on that issue, that was why she, that in that clip you played, mm -hmm. that's what drove her decision making. Mm -hmm. In uh, if we go back to 2016, and and look, if if that is if that is the if your focus, I mean, it is the case that the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party. The Republican Party is failing this test too, but the Democratic Party is the ones in charge on this, and they are much they're more in lockstep on um, on a foreign policy that is. That is sadly and unfortunately antithetical to that. I think it's an indictment of Joe Biden, who it, it seemed a little bit maybe like he got it more than Donald Trump or Barack Obama or you know any of our previous regimes that that had pledged to end our our, our commitments and our blunders. And he did do he did it and won withdrawal from Afghanistan. But now but now yeah. look at it. So yeah, look, I and I completely take that point. And, this, and, and this, I know this, and I know you feel that way. Is, obviously, this is part of what I'm getting at. It's yeah. like if if she wants people to credit her and take her in good faith, which frankly most people who aren't Republicans don't take her in good faith almost at this point. This is why, and it is suspicious. Look, if I sit here and say. Uh, I hate Macs. Macs are terrible computers. Blah, 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 blah. The impl obvious oh, implication Max? is Who's that Max? I think Apple computers. Got it. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> the, the obvious implication, I'm sorry, I'm an old head. That's what we used to call them in the 90s. <laughs> but the, the obvious implication is that I think PCs are better. You know, mm -hmm. we, we reason by inference all the time. Oh. And I think that there is a slippage here that is not accidental. Now, maybe that's unfair and there's plenty of time to correct that. I would love to see her throw her support behind an independent third party because that means that you 
have a real sincere criticism of what's causing the system to be spoiled. But you cannot, I'm sorry, you, I mean, you're right that the Democrats, as I said on my radar, the Democrats voted more for the Ukraine funding, but when 57 out of the 200 odd Republicans in the House still are the only ones who objected and the overwhelming majorities of, of Republicans voted for it when only, what was it, 10 or 11 uh, Republicans in the Senate didn't vote for that same package. What you're looking at as is a, a, a systemic problem. And the fact that there are a couple of Republicans who are doing the right thing on this one issue cannot be used as a salve for the Republican Party well, any more than Bernie Sanders or a couple of squad members being halfway decent on some things is a reason to forgive the Democratic Party for all of My sense is there is more genuine opposition to continuing to fund the Ukraine effort in, in conservative media more broadly, in sort of conservative politics, and that there's not nearly to that degree within the Democratic coalition. I mean, like putting putting the Ukraine flag in your bio is a yes. Democratic personality yes. right now. That but doesn't that, exist that on That has no side. bearing on the systemic critique of the fact that both parties are being able to hide behind that yeah, reality sure. and take money hand over fist, trade stocks for, on these defense contractors, and laugh all the way to the bank while having the veneer of, oh, well, at least we're better than the other guy. That vote blue no matter who, vote red no matter who, that's what's causing all of these people to be, get, be able to get away with this sort of thing. And it would be wonderful if Tulsi Gabbard actually uh, continued the independent streak that people loved her for well, and was willing to call out the elites, where, whatever the, the letter is behind their name. Well, again, we would love to have her on the show. I would love to facilitate this discussion between the two of you. So we'll see if we can make that happen. We'll have more rising after this. Stay with us. Congresswoman, none of this matters unless there's a nuclear war, which you voted to send arms and weapons to Ukraine. Tulsi Gabbard, she's left the Democratic Party because there are a bunch of war hawks, okay? You originally voted, you ran as an outsider, yet you've been voting to start this war in Ukraine. You're voting to start a thermonuclear war with Russia and China. Why are you playing with the lives of American citizens? You're playing with our lives. There will be no neighbors if there's a nuclear bomb. You voted to mobilize and send money to Ukrainian Nazis. You're a coward. You're a progressive socialist. Where are you against the war mobilization? He's telling the right truth. You have done nothing. Tulsi Gabbard has shown guts where you've shown cowardice. I believed in you, and you became the very thing you sought to fight against. So both leftist Twitter and some parts of right Twitter were lit up over this clip as it came out last night. Two leftists there approached AOC at, it looks like a town hall meeting where she was talking about issues not related to the war in Ukraine, about her choice to vote for Ukraine funding and be generally silent and uncritical as most of the elected left has been about this conflict. Not, he, the, the, the protester said, none of this matters. You will have no neighbors if there is, in fact, a nuclear war, putting a pretty fine point on the conversation that's been, having, been happening here on this show. Absolutely. And in, in some parts of the media, but very much not in Congress. Yeah, they were making points we ourselves have made. They were making them with more um, visceral <laughs> anger, I think, yeah. but I understand why. Uh, yeah, look, it's just a fact. It's an undeniable fact that most... Political figures in both parties are supporting the whatever-it-takes attitude that the Biden administration has toward Ukraine. There is some opposition among Republican members of the House, and there's almost no opposition, or not vocal, certainly not vocal, there because there is vocal opposition. Again, it's not, I won't say it's most Republicans, because it's not, 
but it is mostly it's Republicans. Only Republicans, right? Mostly right. only Republicans. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, so we're, then we're forced to speculate, and I wonder how she answered that question. We yeah, don't so have any you, footage of that. If you keep watching a little bit, she she basically tells him that if he waits around, like he'll, she'll address it later, but not right now. And they keep pressing that this is urgent. Why can't you talk about it now? And she she says to them, "Well, you're because because you're being rude. You're being rude to everybody else who's here." And you know, I don't right. know the full context of how this meeting was going, or if other people in the room were in fact bothered you know, by this interjection, if I had been in the room, I would have happily ceded my time or whatever right. line there was to ask questions or whatever, because this is, I do think, a really pressing issue. And I think you're seeing that kind of visceral approach in part because folks have been ignored trying to press this issue with progressives in the House uh, and in the Senate for a while. It would, and it would seem like a no-brainer for them to be more vocally against this. They have no, uh, obviously, AOC, the squad members, et cetera, Bernie Sanders, they have no uh, problem with criticizing the Biden administration. They criticize well, them. They used to not. <laughs> they used yeah. to not, but it seemed like there was a weird secret handshake that went down at some point in 2020. Look, AOC used to be a person yeah. who said, I would rather be a one-term congressperson than to forsake my values. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Yeah. But when she was recruited to run, she was was recruited with the stated purpose of having an adversarial relationship to the Democratic Party. She herself said at some point during the 2020 primary season that in any sane country, she and Joe Biden would not be in the same party. And yet what you're seeing is a lot of hesitation to criticize Joe Biden. You saw this with Bernie Sanders as well, starting during the primary where they were actual contenders against each other, saying Joe Biden is my friend. I think he'll be a good president. I think he's a good guy. And on this particular issue, some people on the left, even those who really were very fond of Bernie Sanders, have noticed, have noted him as being insufficiently strong um, on this particular issue. And right now, he's been completely silent, completely silent. And I I can more understand... um you know, back during the campaign, trying to maintain a collegial relationship with Biden from a, a Bernie perspective. I mean, the Ukraine issue was not on the table then. Well, but we're not in the middle of a presidential campaign. There is not, it's not a binary choice between Biden and Trump or anything you say to undermine Biden will cause Trump to be the next president. We're not in that phase right now. So the idea that, you, and this is, a, this is a very important and key yeah. um, issue for, for the left and for libertarians and be. for certain elements of the new right. And there's just silence. Especially Deafening if, silence. You know, both of those those um, protesters brought up Tulsi Gabbard leaving the Democratic Party. Yes. And if that makes folks uncomfortable, if, if, if people are irritated at the idea that Tulsi Gabbard is being held up as better on this issue and perhaps other issues than what are supposed to be our best and brightest in the squad, that's not on Tulsi, that's on the squad. And at a certain point, if someone that you don't like for whatever reason is making you look bad, that's an indictment of your own politics, not a reason to come up with bad faith criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard. Because on this issue, she has managed to get to the left of what is supposed to be the leftmost vanguard and the most principled politicians that the left movement, the Bernie movement, has in Congress. And that is very disappointing. And that is why you're going to start seeing outbursts like this. And I think, hopefully, see candidates that actually run that capture this kind of energy that I think are more representative of where the bulk of the left is on this issue. What I suspect the issue is here for AOC is a kind of, she's been sort of lightly culturally captured mm. by elite media. Mm. Uh, the, the, the glowing profiles, the kind of elevation to status as a fashion icon means you have a lot of pressure to adopt or signal solidarity with elite cultural values, of which it is clear, you know, putting the Ukraine flag 
you know, tattooing it to your body is kind is really honestly that's yeah. the level of um, of support with all the the endless celebrities who are doing photo ops with Zelensky. Um, that that is a kind of that that's a kind of pressure. Yeah. Um, and and. I, I suspect that's why there's relative silence. Yeah, and by the way, it's almost impossible to do any kind of interviews. You know, to the extent that she wants a more polite um, kind of questioning. Sure. Uh, all those of us in left media, unless you are in one of the parts of left media that frankly doesn't ask very uh, tough questions, that doesn't really do anything in the way of investigatory questioning with these people, you cannot get an, an airing. You cannot mm-hmm. get a meeting. And when people like we would that, ask her politely. I mean, like. Of course, I, I'm, a, I'm a teddy bear. But the, yeah. the point is, like, it is, it's not really about tone. It's about the substance. They know better than to, to open themselves up to the kind of questioning about their strategy here. And you saw moments like Max Blumenthal um, confronting um, Cory Bush uh, outside of Congress when, when they were out there for the eviction moratorium, very politely asking questions, at one point confronting Ro Khanna on the street. Because, again, the only way you can get to these people is to, to go up to them on, on, in Congress. And basically being... You know, um, Red Scare told that he was a Russian, a Russian Putin puppet propagandist, and uh, Cory Bush, uh, her team, basically encircled her and implied that Blumenthal was some, somehow being harassing by asking the kind of questions that people want to know. So, you know, I understand that it might be taxing to be shouted at at a meeting, yeah. but that's what happens when you don't open yourself up yeah. to the fourth estate. Yeah. Well, AOC is welcome to come on Rising, and we can have a polite conversation. There's no no shouting. Uh, if she would do that, that would be fantastic. It, it would be my pleasure. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock is leading Republican challenger Herschel Walker by three points in the race for Georgia's Senate seat, according to a new Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Georgia News collaborative poll. This is ahead of a televised debate that will take place between Walker and Warnock tomorrow night, which will be hosted by Nexstar. That's our parent company. Joining us now to weigh in on this poll and what we can expect to see tomorrow is border correspondent at News Nation, Robert Sherman. Welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. So it looks like uh, Warnock has pulled ahead a little bit. Uh, it's still a tight race. Can you tell us how much you think uh, the last week's revelations about Herschel Walker's personal life has caused uh, Warnock to pull ahead, and if you think it's going to be enough to allow him to uh, cinch a victory here? Well, you know, I mean, it really depends, because I think one of the things that we're seeing in this state is that it doesn't seem like there are many undecided voters here in Georgia. Most everybody has made up their mind. And the number one issue in this Senate race is, without question, the balance of power and control of the United States Senate. So I mean, we were just here at a Brian Kemp event in Southern Georgia. And I mean, you talk to a lot of people who they say, this doesn't bother me. If he did make this mistake, if we're all human. We can move on from it. The most important thing is to put somebody into Washington who has an R next to their name instead of a D. You talk to Democrats in kind of a similar situation. So, I mean, there are independent voters out there. There are a few undecided voters out there. Uh, but I mean, Herschel Walker has been in a bit more of a precarious position compared to Brian Kemp for months in this rate. Brian Kemp has been pulling ahead uh, of Stacey Abrams pretty consistently for a while. So I mean, it seems as though that at this point, numbers haven't moved much. I just think a lot of votes have already been decided, and maybe a couple do get decided over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and we, when we discuss these races, we totally agree with you and acknowledge that so many people are just voting for an R or a D, regardless of any other factor. But then, of course, the fact that you know Kemp is is performing much better against Stacey Abrams than 
is ahead of her, whereas the the R so the R is ahead of the Dem there, but then in the Senate candidate uh, race, the R is somewhat behind the the, the D. That suggests that there are some voters out there who are who are going to vote for Kemp, but not for Walker or et cetera. And and so what, you know, what is for, even if it's a small number of people, like you know, what are they focusing on that is maybe causing them to say, yeah, I like I like Kemp, or I like is it personality based, is it policy based, but then not Walker. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like I mean, taking Brian Kemp for a second. I mean, you he, he's the very reserved. Georgia kind of politician, you know, I mean, not exactly, you know, the guy who excites a crowd, but people have said he's done what we've asked him to do. He's been a good governor for us. Uh, Herschel Walker doesn't have a political track record. Raphael Warnock does, Um, you know, and now it's like you talk to a lot of voters down here. Big issues are the economy and things like that. Uh, So, I mean, that definitely, you know, I mean, a governor in many cases has more sway over that than necessarily one out of 100 senators. Uh, in the higher chamber of uh, in the higher chamber. Uh, but, I mean, one thing that I would note as well is, is that, you know, we also talk to a lot of people who say, well, you know, Herschel Walker has this scandal. Raphael Warnock has some baggage as well. So maybe that doesn't matter as much. Sometimes people mm-hmm. just go with the person who they've seen the most, who they've known the best. Uh, and there aren't a lot of people who are pointing to, at least that we spoke to, Raphael Warnock's track record in the United States Senate as the reason of voting against him. Uh, I mean, it's more so just, again, you know, what party that he represents. So there are some people who are out there, um, but I mean, it definitely like uh, Raphael Warnock has the benefit of incumbency status. And sometimes we overlook that, but that can't be understated. That does play a role. That does feel like what's happening in both races, frankly, and what might explain the differences uh, there. I I also think that sometimes when you have these uh, kind of 50-50 partisan splits like this, the game becomes who can basically not suppress the vote, but keep people at home, right. disidentifies people from wanting to turn out, rather. I don't, I'm not alluding to kind of uh, election interference right. and things like that. But this was a little bit of the game in, in 2016. There was this idea that, you know, Trump getting in some of these hits on Hillary Clinton, things that were frankly true about her record, weren't uh, designed to make Democrats come out and vote for Trump, but if he could make her seem like a sufficiently unpalatable candidate, folks would stay home and he could reap the benefits of that. And we did see that happen in places like, I believe it was um, in Michigan, where thousands of voters went to the polls, voted for Democrats all down ticket and left the top of the ballot blank. I mean, how, what are you hearing from people about enthusiasm? And do you have any sense of whether one camp or the other has generated enthusiasm more among folks to actually turn out and vote. And maybe is that where the Herschel Walker um, scandals are going to come into play? Well, you know, what's interesting here is, is that I mean, Georgia was a, once at one time a reliably red state uh, and the electorate definitely favored Republicans in this state. I mean, now Georgia looks like, you know, the consummate swing state, like Ohio and Florida and Michigan and Wisconsin and places like that. So, I mean, you talk to people here, everybody says that they really want to go out and vote because, hmm. I mean, how our system works is, you know, I mean, these votes feel more significant than they do in California or in New York. So people view themselves as being at the center of the political universe, shall we say here. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think you are going to see pretty high turnout here across the state. Uh, you know, I mean, the question is, do people split the ticket or not? And, you know, you talk to Republicans, they don't see a split ticket. You talk to Democrats, they don't see a split ticket. But, I mean, the polling shows that it's out there, you know, so, I mean, those, those folks might not be as outspoken, um, but, I mean, it could just be one of those things we just have to wait until Election Day. I mean, it, it is hard to find those people who are saying, I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp, but I'm going to vote for Raphael Warnock. Um, and, I mean, you look at the Georgia Senate runoffs two years ago, 
there weren't a lot of people who voted for David Perdue and then voted for Raphael Warnock. That was a pretty small number. Uh, you stands to reason that's probably going to be similar again. Hmm. That's so. It's so fascinating, though, that the polling though shows that difference. I guess then that right. goes to well, how how accurate is the polling? Which sometimes is uh, you know is off. But if, if to have it be accurate for one candidate and then off for another candidate of the same party well, also could seems be the, like a the, less likely the shame issue right because i mean wasn't it this issue oh years right ago, people don't want to say they're going to vote for her to walker but they are going to exactly. vote for her to walker exactly right you know i mean there was one person who we just spoke to as well who said you know i mean if herschel walker did what he did uh you know his perspective was that's pretty shameful and you know i wouldn't want him to be my united states senator he wasn't my first choice but I feel like I have to go vote for him because it's better than the alternative. And we are hearing some of that down here as well. Um, you know, so again, I mean, it could be people don't want to admit it, especially in South Georgia communities like this, very Christian environment. Maybe they don't want to say it out loud. Um, that perspective is there. It's just how large is it and how much of it's going to show up, show up on election day. Mm-hmm. Holding their nose and voting for the R or the D. Yeah, the, the reverend is not the Christian right. choice. Yeah. <laughs> what a world. Thank you so much for yeah. uh, calling in, Robert. You got it. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. The death of a golden retriever in New York has rocked a progressive enclave in Brooklyn, New York. So on August 3rd, in the neighborhood of Park Slope, New York, a woman was walking her dog at around 6 a.m. when she was attacked by a homeless man. The attack caused her dog's death. And the woman posted on a neighborhood app next door about her experience. She called for the man to be arrested, but nothing was done. Instead of the man's arrest, her post on the app blew up an argument about social justice. Now, two months after the attack, members of the community are still arguing about whether the homeless attacker should be arrested or whether his welfare should be prioritized. Others online have commented that arresting the man would exacerbate systemic racism, as he is black and the dog owner is white. The woman attacked says, I think that there should be more resources for them. But what I emphasize is that this is just one person who needs to be removed from the park. He's violent. End of story. And so then the New York Times had a write-up of this story. So there's both, I saw Barry Weiss's Substack had a version of it, and then the New York Times had a write-up that was really, uh, look, I, I think would make a lot of people angry in the way they, they framed this. Like they consulted some bioethicists who are saying, ah, I don't know, what to be done? I think most people will say this is not okay and something needs to be done about someone who, who beat a dog to death, right? I mean, this is not, this is not... Like, are we just supposed to accept that this is how cities have to be now? I don't think so. But I think this also plays into a very harsh side of the rights rhetoric when it comes to crime. Um, the majority, the overwhelming majority, over 97% of those who are homeless are at no risk to anyone, essentially other than themselves. They're not going to be violent. They're not, you know, expressing any of that. In this case, I guess he's in the other 3%. Mm-hmm. And there has to be some level of recourse for that because you can't go around, you know, threatening people's lives or scaring them or, you know, giving them bodily injury or their dogs. I'm a right. huge dog lover, but it's one of those things where I feel like uh, certain advocacy groups have taken the wrong side of this. And I say that as somebody who is hashtag Black Lives Matter. I believe in the mantra. I believe in um, mm-hmm. ensuring that equity happens, particularly for a community that has fallen under the weight of systemic racism for generations. But with that being said, I wouldn't have cared if this guy 
was a white guy. At the end of the day, right. you killed somebody's dog. Right. At that point, there is something that needs to be done. And I think that, again, um, sometimes people take on these right. personal missions that aren't exactly necessary, and it waters down the whole point of the movie. Because in this case, it was you, you had the racial breakup that way. But you know, in, some, in, in many of these communities where you have, again, I, I agree with you that it's not like all homeless people by any stretch of imagination, but where you're seeing you know, these videos of crime on the subways or you know, people being attacked or punched or knifed. I mean, I, the victims sometimes are, are black. Uh, maybe they live in underprivileged neighborhoods where this kind of thing is more common. And so it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel like racially tolerant, like, because they're the victims too. Exactly. And we know that violence happens in proximity. Proximity, violence, most violent crime or most crime in general is people who look like the community they actually live in. Mm -hmm. White areas of, of white communities have more crime that is contributed by white people because they live amongst each other. Mm -hmm. Black communities have more crime amongst black people because they are closer to and live in the same communities as people who look like them. Part of that is the segregation of housing in our, in our society. But I'm a native of Chicago. Um, there are certain places that you know not to go at a certain time of day or any time of day. But with that being said, you also fully recognize that there are crime issues that have existed in certain communities across this country, specifically large urban centers, for decades now. And at this point, I think post-pandemic, we're seeing crime levels go up, specifically violent crime, for several reasons. One is going to be mental health. We also have a, a high housing crisis. We also have people who can't make ends meet. And when those things all come together, in addition to our nation's drug problem, right. we're going to see the same levels are close to the same levels of violence that we saw during the crack epidemic. That's just kind of how it happens. Violence is cyclical, but we know what the causes are. And instead of actually addressing those, in most conversations, we see demonization of individuals or certain communities rather than having the conversation about how we reduce crime, because we absolutely know how. We just don't want to invest in it. Well, I, the drug problem is really key because you know so many, so many people we interact with in D.C., New York, wherever it is, I, I see people who are having psychotic episodes and are, are drug addicts, and they need treatment um and it's it's very we can't look i i don't want to send the police round up everybody either but clearly they there needs i think there needs to be some level of coercion involved to get people to take medicine they need because it doesn't feel humanitarian to me to leave these people on the street e even if they're not stabbing somebody else they're, they're shaking they're thrashing they're having vivid hallucinations like I don't, I'm not okay with that. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, I remember going to Seattle, and this was pre the um, the pandemic. And downtown Seattle, you see people who are largely white people who are literally having episodes in the middle of the street, and yeah. people just walk by like it's nothing. The majority of these are individuals who have, you know, used drugs to help eradicate some of their mental health issues, and in some cases, drug use in and of itself creates mental health issues. So it can be, you know, one side or the other. But our system of healthcare does not provide. Um, the opportunity or the access levels that we need for people who have mental health issues, even for those who actually have insurance. Most insurance only covers mental health up to a certain point or, you know, a number, a set number of sessions, five, seven, whatever. Um, for those who I don't those have any. I use those in two days. Exactly. Like, somebody who does I'm it, I'm like, I, I, I need my, my therapy and I believe in therapy. But I think that it's very serious that we understand that it is costly. Mental health is costly. And we have a nation that does not value it or does not put bunny where its mouth is. Uh, again, in my hometown of Chicago, under Rahm Emanuel, we lost over 30 mental health clinics. Um, there is a cost to society when that happens. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, and, and, we're all, and we all pay for it. We all pay for it. Then we end up with these, 
spaces in cities that are not usable anymore because they're filled with people who are having real are, who are in real distress and need help, and it's not and it's not okay, and it just feels like it's getting worse everywhere. It absolutely is. I don't think that there is a race or socioeconomic status to mental health. We know yeah. that there are rich people who have these issues, there are yeah. middle class people, poor people at all education levels. What we do know is that you know issues like anxiety have gone up significantly amongst the younger generation, um, depression as well. We know that suicide rates have gone up specifically amongst kids. A lot of that is a result of bullying and social media attacks and things like that. Um, back in the day when we used to get bullied, probably, you know. <laughs> that was bad too. It was bad, but yeah. like I didn't have to worry about the whole world seeing it in yeah. a five second clip. Today yeah. you do. So it's a, it's a much different type of thing. And I think that we as a nation need to be more cognizant of how to address these issues and to put the money where it needs to go in terms of eradicating some of what we're seeing. Because if we don't, we're going to see more videos like that, more dog attacks, more people attacks. We're yeah. going to see a different level of danger and risk if we don't address it very soon. Absolutely. That's something we'll continue to cover here and continue to follow. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm here with The Hill's Editor-in-Chief, Bob Cusack. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Hey, Robbie. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, they have drifted apart the last two years, prompting concerns about whether they'll be able to work together if Republicans take back power. And The Hill had some really good reporting on this. Yep. Can you shed more light on it for us? It's fascinating. I've never seen such an odd relationship between the two top Republicans on Capitol Hill in my 25 years in Washington. And usually they get along and they unite. But of course, what's at the center of their disagreement? Well, it's former President Trump, Mitch McConnell. McConnell uh, and Trump will never get along again. And McCarthy really needs Trump at this time, especially if he wants to, and he does, to become speaker. So while McConnell had, he voted for the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, also a chips bill, and a recent funding bill, McCarthy rallied his caucus against all three. So now if McCarthy, as expected, becomes speaker, they're going to have to, I think, get along better. Now, of course, they push back on that, the aides, and they say they get along. And it's not like there's tension, like Trump tension. Right. But th it's not quite the same relationship that Mitch McConnell had with uh, former Speaker Paul Ryan hmm. and former Speaker John Boehner. Hmm. I, I think I would say from hearing from activists, conservative pundits, et cetera, they certainly think that Kevin McCarthy has done a better job in kind of keeping the various strands of conservatism together yep. that, you know, he is he is still broadly liked or maybe tolerated at least yeah. by your, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene faction as well as the more mainstream Republican faction is that there's not a, there's not a lot of people really coming for Kevin McCarthy. Right. It's not true of McConnell because of the relationship he's had with Trump. That's right. Trump has not endorsed McCarthy yet for speaker, but no one's really running against him. McCarthy wisely now has Jim Jordan on his side, uh, who used to be kind of an enemy. Uh, so I, I think that McCarthy is going to get the votes. I, I think some of the drama around it uh, is kind of overblown. But I think McCarthy's going to, but you're right. Mitch McConnell also told uh, CNN this week that, hey, he's got the votes to become the top Republican leader in the next Congress. But usually, Robbie, that's unanimous. I don't think this time is going to be I don't think unanimous. it's going to be unanimous. No. It still might be the case, but I don't think it'll be unanimous. Now, it'll be interesting if the dynamic shifts, uh, you know, expecting, we're all kind of expecting the Republicans to retake the House. Yes. Senate very much in doubt. Uh, will Kevin McCarthy you have to govern in a different way when he is actually managing a majority coalition? Will he then, he'll no longer have the luxury of just kind of routinely say, rallying the, the yeah. troops to oppose whatever. It's easy to oppose stuff. It, it's when easy you're to actually stuff. In the, When you're in the majority, <laughs> you end up doing stuff. Yeah. When you're in the minority, you can go home kind of early. 
But majority, when you're in the majority, you've got to drive the bus. So I do think McCarthy uh, will have to shift. But it also depends on his margin. How, how mm-hmm. Not only do they win the House, but by how much. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're less than a month from midterms, and the House Democrats' campaign arm actually announced a $56.5 million fundraising haul in the third quarter, which is $14 million more than the GOP. Should Republicans be worried about that? I think they should be a little worried about this. I think this was surprising to me. I mean, yeah. usually the, 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 the party in power gets more money, okay? But we were just talking about it how it's likely the Republicans are going to win the majority. So therefore, I would have thought this would have been closer. However, where do I think most of the money from donors is going? It's not in the House. It's going to the Senate. And I think House Republicans are struggling from this. But you got to give the Democratic campaign arm, uh, which has had some troubles <laughs> over the last couple of years, uh, really did a good job in fundraising. And this is important. Will it be enough for them to, to keep the majority? Probably not. Is it reflective of the changing demographics of, of who is the Republican Party and who is the Democratic Party that, you know, in the long term, I can imagine Democrats eventually getting a fundraising advantage from the fact that increasingly elite, wealthier people are part of their coalition. The Republican Party is becoming more the wor- a working class party, a, yeah. a small donor kind of situation. That's an interesting point. And, and I, I do think some of that is because of the abortion ruling that has mm-hmm. fired up the left. It certainly fires up the right, too, but it kind of woke them up. But I think that's an interesting point. But on the other hand, remember, cash is not everything. It's not king in politics. Not necessarily. Uh, Hillary Clinton significantly outraised 100%. Uh, Donald Trump. So, so cash is important, but it's not as important as it used to be. Not as important. But you can certainly see how it would make a difference in these you know, couple key races we have that are so close. Yeah. Uh, Oz and Fetterman, uh, Blake Masters in Arizona, yeah. Walker and, and Warnock, the Nevada one. You, you know, these very close races that are going to decide really the fate of, of governance in this country for the next right. and that's several what, years. That's what the nation and, and, and pol- uh, political insiders are, and outsiders too are focusing on, the battle for the Senate. So if you're the House Republican campaign arm, you're like, no, no, no don't assume we're going to win. We need money. It's, it's got to be more challenging than the Senate Republicans saying, hey, we need the money because we need to win the Senate. Is it also an issue for Republicans because Trump does a, a tremendous amount of fundraising for just himself and his private war chest? That the, the Republican, uh, if, if you're giving to a Republican cause that is diverted, that yeah. some of it is going to Trump for various Trump causes that he is, and that he doesn't use that money to back his candidates. He endorses his candidates. Right. He goes to their rallies, but he doesn't spend his money on his candidates. Well, oh yeah, he, he has just started to, but a lot of critics are saying, wow, you've got a lot more money to spend. So, <laughs> so we need more than, you know, whatever, I think it's around five million he's given, but he could give a lot more. And that's, and I think that's Trump change. That's, I mean, come on, he raises five million yeah. times in a week. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really nothing. So I I think that's one to watch. And remember, a lot of these House races are going to go into overtime. They're going to need some money for legal reasons because uh, on election night, many, many of these House races in particular, and maybe Senate, won't be called. Fascinating. But we want to know what, who's won the night of. I know. Not it's frustrated out for weeks. Very frustrating for us pundits and also probably many, many voters. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Thanks, and Robert. we'll see you next week for The Debrief. Take care.